is a story told about a, a man who had been uh, shipwrecked on a desert island and he'd lived on the island for 20 years by himself. And when the rescuers finally came to, uh, found him years later, they got to the island and he said, before we leave, I'd like to show you around the island. And they said, okay. And, and so they walked with him and he said, there, there, there were three huts that he had built. And they said, what is this? And he said, well, that's my house. That's where I've lived for the last 20 years. And it's been my home. It was very nice. And they walked a little bit further and there was another hut. And they said, what is this? He said, this is my church. This is where I worship. This is where I go to be in community with other people. They thought that was kind of funny. Uh, and then they looked over and they saw a third hut and they said, well, what is that over there? And he said, well, that was my church before I got mad and left and came to this church. <laughs> now that's a humorous story, but truth be told, a lot of the conflict in our lives originates right here. Today, we continue this series called All I Want for Christmas, and today the answer is peace. We've heard that famous song, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be. With God as our father, children all are we. Let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. Let peace begin with me, let this be the moment now. With every step I take, let this be my solemn vow to take each moment and live each moment in peace eternally. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Jill Jackson Miller wrote those words back in 1955 and they would become the words to what we call the global anthem for peace. The truth about Jill Jackson Miller is that she grew up as an orphan. She journeyed through years of foster care. She entered into a time of deep depression and despair in her life that led her to attempt suicide, which is the ultimate form of hopelessness. But it was then that she realized a presence, a presence of a higher power that gave her a reason to live. Miller's story is honestly not that much different from many of our own. All of us journey through life with burdens and problems. Life is more difficult for some than it is for others. But if we are honest, all of us go through times in our lives when we feel like we can't go on, when we feel like giving up, when we feel like our situation has become so overwhelming that we simply can't handle it by ourselves. And I would say this morning that every single one of us yearns for the peace that only God can bring into our hearts. Christmas is a season of peace. Christianity is a religion of peace. Christ was a teacher of peace. Think about the carols that we sing this time of year. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. O come, desire of nations bind, all people in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease and fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus taught peace. He said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God in the Sermon on the Mount. And he also says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. 
Forgive 70 times seven. Isaiah writes these beautiful poetic words describing the peaceable kingdom. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But if we are honest, if we are honest with ourselves and honest with each other, we would fully admit that even as Christians, we do not live in a world where we have enough peace. There's not enough peace in our world. There's not enough peace in our communities. There's not enough peace in our hearts. And if we believe what Miller wrote, peace begins in our hearts. Now we can ask the question, where does conflict come from? Where does it originate? James doesn't hold back, the brother of Jesus. He says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. This week, I uh, came across an article that answers this question, where does conflict come from? And this article gave seven places where it comes from. I want to share these with you very briefly this morning. The first is when two or more parties have differing agendas or goals. One party gets its way, the other party doesn't. The second origin, when one party is something that the other party needs or wants but will not comply, there's disappointment and dissatisfaction. Third, when basic personalities create tension, this is where I think the Enneagram is very helpful in getting us to understand who we are and how we behave and how we're motivated or not motivated. Have you ever been around somebody that just put off bad vibes and you thought to yourself, I'm not going to get along with that person? The fourth origin, something significant in an ongoing relationship has changed. Oftentimes, this is what happens in situations of divorce. Things aren't as they used to be. Things aren't as they once were. The fifth origin, one person betrays the trust of another. It takes a long time to build up trust, but a very short time to tear it down. The sixth, one person creates conflict by saying or doing something thoughtless or irresponsible. Think about all the sexual harassment cases that have surfaced in the news. Conflict. And seventh, one person's needs in the relationship are not being met and the other person refuses to acknowledge or to do anything about it. Now, I found that interesting. Some of them are obvious, some of them are not, because if we're going to work for peace, we must first acknowledge the reality that there is lots of conflict in our world and in our culture, and yes, even in our hearts. But what I want to do this morning is I want to give you a recipe, a formula, an antidote for peace. What does peace look like? What does peace feel like? Well, consider these seven words or phrases as an answer to those questions. The first is compromise. Not everybody can get their way in life all the time, even though some people will try. Isn't it ironic that as selfishness has increased in our world, peace has decreased? When I work with couples who are going to get married or couples who have been married for a long time, we talk about compromise. And it's not fair if the same person is always compromising and the other person is not. Compromise means not getting everything that you want. It means meeting in the middle. It means sacrificing something on behalf of the relationship. 
The second word I would give you this morning is compassion. There needs to be more compassion in our world. And I'm not just talking about charity. I'm talking about the way that we treat those who are closest to us, our spouses, our children, our friends, church members. And guess what? The definition of compassion is concern for the suffering and misfortune of others. And everybody suffers. It's part of being human. Some suffer more than others, but everybody suffers. So there needs to be more compassion in our world. There needs to be more grace. There needs to be more empathy. We need to get to a place where we can say, I'm going to cut that person some slack because he or she is probably doing the best that they can. The third thing I would say, relationship building. Have you ever noticed how People typically don't demonize people with whom they have a relationship, somebody that they know well because they have a basic respect for their humanity. This is where social isolation comes into play. It's become a problem in our culture, and no, social media is not solving it. People don't know each other. Many of us don't even know our neighbors because we haven't taken the time to walk across the street or to walk down the street to meet them. There was a point in time in the 1990s when members of Congress were encouraged to not live in Washington, D.C., so that they could go back and live in their home cities or hometowns. The theory behind this was you need to live in the place and with the people that you represent so you can know their needs, you can know their challenges, you can know what's on their mind and, and, and what you need to, to, to stand up for. But here's what happened. When members of Congress stopped living in the same community, their kids stopped playing on the same ball team. Their spouses quit serving on boards together. They jetted out of town as soon as meetings were over. And guess what? Relationships were lost. They diminished. And then it became much easier to demonize people of a different party because they simply didn't know each other. Relationship building is a big part of being peaceful. Without relationships, we tend to focus on what divides us rather than what unites us. The fourth thing I would say about peace is learning to embrace change. Things don't stay the same in life. People change, situations change, relationships change, families change, jobs change. This is normal. It's a part of life. Ecclesiastes says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And once we accept this reality and we don't always push back on it, we will become more at peace with ourselves because change is a part of life. Now, not all change is good. Not all change is welcome, but it's a part of life. Conservatives can be guilty of never wanting change. Liberals can be guilty of always wanting change, but change is a given in life. And, and if we can embrace that and not always fight it, we might experience more peace in our hearts. The fifth thing I'll say has to do with building trust. Trust is the currency in all relationships. Trust is what allows us to open up and share life together. But trust does not come easy. And for many people, it doesn't come easy because they have been hurt in the past. They've been scarred in the past. They've been burned. They've been done wrong. And yes, the people that know us the best can absolutely hurt us the deepest. And yes, human beings have always had the ability to disappoint and to let you down. But we cannot let that keep us from trusting. What does Tennyson say? 
Tis better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. Don't let what's happened in the past keep you from trusting again. That's not good. You have to be able to trust again. One more thing I'll say on that. As Christians, we must learn to trust in God. Not just say that we trust in God, not just talk about trusting God, but actually trusting God with our lives and trusting that the future is going to be okay. Number six, choose words carefully. Our words matter. What we may say to other people matters. I wish some of our political leaders, both parties, would choose their words more carefully. In Ephesians, Paul says, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. He says, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up so that your words may give grace to those who hear. We need to choose our words carefully because we can either build people up or we can tear them down. We can compliment each other or we can criticize. We can be a voice of hope and positivity or we can be a voice of cynicism and negativity. The choice is ours. Lastly this morning, the seventh ingredient for peace is forgiveness. There simply is no peace without forgiveness. I preached a sermon back in August when I celebrated 10 years here at at Woodmont, and I said this, and I believe this, forgiveness is a recipe for survival. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is a recipe for survival. Jesus said, forgive 70 times seven. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we're okay with what's happened. It doesn't mean that we accept what's happened, but it does mean that we've decided to move on and to let it go and to not keep bringing it up. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead. The past is gone. It's done. It's finished. We can't change it. But all we can do is learn from it and move on. And so many of us are still holding on to things from the past. And we keep bringing those things up because we think that it gives us power over other people. But it's not healthy. Forgiveness is a recipe for survival. There are two basic accounts of the birth narrative in the Bible. One is found in Matthew, that was our text this morning, and one is found in Luke. Matthew's account is unique because it tells us about the wise men, which is very fitting for Walk Through Bethlehem Sunday. And we always, you know, say and joke here, we have a hard time finding three wise men at Woodmont for Walk Through Bethlehem Sunday. But Matthew writes this, in the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and we've come to pay him homage. Now scholars will tell you that these wise men were men of considerable affluence and wealth. The fact that they are often referred to as kings tells us that they were highly educated and they were also very rich. They could afford to leave home for a long time and go on a journey to find this baby born in Bethlehem. Many say that they were Persians from the Midian tribe, from the east, but they were holy and full of wisdom, often referred to as the Magi. Now, if all of this is true, then let me ask you a question this morning. If these wise men had everything in life that they could possibly want, why did they leave their families and the warmth of their homes to travel a great distance to see this newborn baby? Why? Apparently something was missing in their lives. 
In the midst of all their wealth and their affluence and their power, there was a sense of emptiness and longing on the inside. They had everything that our world can give us from a material sense, everything to live with, but they were longing for something else. And it's with this sense of emptiness and restlessness that many of us enter the Christmas season again this year. And we too need to go and seek the Christ child and let him change our hearts. Matthew concludes his passage by saying, and having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. You see, it was clear to the wise men that Herod did not want to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill him. And so the scriptures tell us that they went back to their country by another road. Now, if you're somebody who just reads the Bible straightforward and literally all the time, yes, it might mean that they just went home by a different path. But if you can also learn to interpret scripture spiritually, what it might mean is that when they left the nativity scene, their lives were changed forever. They went home by another road means that they were not the same as they were when they came. William Barclay says that in the Gospels, we find three basic reactions to the birth of Jesus. The first was Herod's reaction, which was one of fear and hatred and hostility, jealousy, envy. He wanted to destroy the child-born king of the Jews. The second reaction was the one of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were basically indifferent They really didn't care because they were just occupied with doing the thing at the temple and following their rules. And the third reaction was that of the wise men, which was adoring worship. They traveled a long distance to see the baby and they brought precious gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and they dropped to their knees and they worshiped. And guess what? 2,000 years later, We get to make our choice as to how we're going to approach the birth of the Christ child. We can be hateful and hostile and fearful as many are towards Christianity. We can be completely indifferent as a growing number of Christians are in our world, neither hot nor cold there sometimes, not at others. Or we can bow down and worship the one sent by God to set us free, to save the world, and to deliver us from our sins. The choice is ours. And I hope that we let the peace of Christmas rule in our hearts. And I hope we can spread that peace to other people around us. And then I hope also that we too will go home by another road. Amen.